BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Hashtag RealPod. I'm your host, Victoria Garrick. And on today's episode, we will be hearing from a very powerful and influential woman in network television. And the best part about all that power is that she earned it by speaking up and relentlessly pushing for her voice to be heard. Her name is Tiffany Smith Anawaii. She is CBS Network's Executive Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion. By the way, a position that she created after she saw the lack of diversity both on camera and behind the scenes in media. Tiffany has been written about in Time Magazine, featured on a variety of shows, spoken at numerous female empowerment conferences, and she is here today to share so, so much wisdom with us. You're going to hear all about her journey, how she lost her college scholarship, had to get a job and put herself through school, the lessons she learned along the way, and how she's not only scored a seat at the table, but how she's learned to speak up and call the shots. I met Tiffany when I was just a mere intern at CBS my freshman year of college four years ago, but we have stayed close ever since. I'm so grateful she wanted to spend her time with us today, so let's get started. So just a lot has changed since we met, but you were so helpful in giving me advice and helping me figure out sort of where you wanted to go, and I'm so grateful for our relationship. Me too. <laughs> I really am. There was something that when we first met, in there was that speaker night, I believe, Yeah. and you were there, and you sat in the front row, and I always make notice of who sits in the front row. That's just <laughs> something, because I give that talk so often. It just, it's, you're closer to me by proximity, so I will connect. And I connected with you a lot. You then, you were the first to ask a question. I always noticed that also. You were the first to ask a question. So I think that I had a, and your questions were smart, thought outful, um, thought out and thoughtful. And so I just had a, an affinity towards you, especially because you wanted to know more. So it was beyond the talk. And then when we met in my office and then we were, you know, created more of a, I would say like a friendship in the sense that I'm old enough to be your mom, <laughs> um, but still, you know, more within a, uh, a friendship in the sense that I wanted almost like a mentorship, if you will. For sure. And the important thing about like remembering that story what I remember of that is like I sat in the front row because I'm thinking, here's this super accomplished, inspiring, powerful woman coming in. Like, why would I not want to be up in her face, mm-hmm. get to know her, like utilize that connection we could make? And I yes. think I remember like a lot of the interns being like, oh, we have this thing tonight. And like mm-hmm. they'd rather dip out. 
And it's so important for people to understand, and you can speak to this a lot, is if you want something or you see a need for something or you see Mm -hmm. an opportunity, you have to open the door. Absolutely. And especially to me, if you are, this is an entertainment internship and you're on a working lot. So if you're not going to utilize your position of, and everyone wants to help the intern. So it's a wonderful position to be in. And I always say that internships are teach you a lot about what you want to do and also what you don't want to do. So it's great to have that experience. Um, and I think that sometimes interns, because believe me, there's a lot going on, not only school and family, and if you're an athlete, sports, whatever that it might be. And sometimes just getting the internship is a lot. So I too do understand that. And the last thing that someone wants to do, especially if they have another job, is go listen to someone speak. But I do think that you have to take advantage of these opportunities because if you don't, there's a million more people in line that will. Mm -hmm. And you were one of those people. And Mm -hmm. so that's what created something that, and it's not only just you, I would say, a lot of the interns that I've had or that I've had over the years, and I've been here, I'm going on 19 years at CBS. I've had hundreds of interns. And I can say that I've kept in touch with a large proponent of those. I just, the other day, there was someone from 15 years ago that put me as a reference. That's going to be us. You know, and I'm like, (laughs) I remember that person. And yes, I would recommend them um, Uh because they stayed in touch. And it doesn't take much to do that. Shoot a little email every now and again. Make sure that, you know, or, or a text or whatever it is, I'm thinking about you. And I think that that's what I've done with you. And especially knowing your journey, I wanted to make sure that I was letting you know I'm thinking about you. And it's crazy how when you met me, I was not I was nowhere near the person I am today. Like when you met me, I had never spoken up about depression or anxiety. Like yes. I had never I had issues with food in my body and that was a secret. Like from meeting you, it's it's just wild how much can change in 4 years, but also how much like a person can change and develop. And I feel like you've always been someone that I just feel like you know it all, like in a good way. Like you're so wise. I don't. I you're promise the person I don't. I'd want to call if like I had some terrible breakup and you'd be like, yes. why are you calling me? And I'd be like, because you know everything. <laughs> I know a lot, but I don't know everything. But I definitely, I would want you to call me. I, You know, it's one of those that I really feel that um, that I do have good advice. I definitely feel that. I'm confident in that I'm not going to steer someone wrong. And that all comes from experience. So when you, Absolutely. let's talk about when you were my age. Did uh-huh. you know what you wanted to do? I thought I knew what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do. And it was one of those that I think that unless you're going to be something specific, such as a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, there's a clear path to that. Like you got to go to medical school or you got to go to dental school. Um, but for myself, I can remember, and I want to take you back to when I was eight years old, I'm sitting on my father's lap watching football. My team was the Pittsburgh Steelers for whatever reason. I think I like their helmets. (laughs) And that was my team. During halftime, I saw a woman by the name of Jane Kennedy and she walked out and she started interviewing one of the players. And I turned to my dad and I said, daddy, a girl can do that? And so, and the shock on his face also was just a little bit like he wanted to reassure me that, yes, of course they can do that, but also a little bit sad in the sense that I didn't even think that they could. Mm -hmm. And she was a, she's a woman of color. So she looked like me. So I definitely resonated towards that. And then from that moment on, I worked in through high school. And then when I got to college, I'm going to major in broadcast journalism. I'm going to be the next Jane Kennedy because there wasn't, as you say, there was a plethora of sports, female sports broadcasters and mostly white, Mm -hmm. mostly blonde. Mm -hmm. And 
I didn't have that growing up. So Jane Kennedy was it. And it's how ironic she worked for CBS. So it's kind of like kismet that here I am now, but not in that role. Um, Did you also love sports? Like I love sports. Football, you know the I ins and football. outs. I knew the ins and outs because I watched, and it was one of those kind of like a, a familiar thing. You know, we we're going to sit down and every Sunday we're going to watch, but we also did, and we would have parties also. So it was basketball. It was boxing. It was, um, I would watch hockey just because, I mean, I wasn't, I'm a native Angelino, so that's not mm-hmm. like to me, a sport that we continuously like, oh, I can't wait to watch a hockey game, but I wanted to know about it. Um, Funny enough, there wasn't really popular like volleyball. I would watch at the Olympics. I didn't watch college volleyball. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't really popular um, in my zeitgeist then. It was was still going on, you know what I mean? But it just wasn't popular to me. Um, So I was definitely a sports fanatic. And when I got to college, that's what I majored in. My internship was with the CBS affiliate in Washington D.C. So you, quick rewind, you get yeah. a you get an academic scholarship to Howard University. Yes, and this is where the you're doing the internship. Your yes, freshman year. Okay. Yes, um, and you can talk about how I lost that scholarship. Also, well, I would love you to tell that story because <laughs> I think it's powerful. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm my freshman year. My freshman year, I am all about it. Can't wait to get into that internship. Can't wait to get in that newsroom. Once I got into the newsroom, I realized I don't want to do this. I can't. It was everything but the sports. It was a little bit pre-TMZ era. So it was almost that they didn't, they talked about the game, but they wanted to know personal things about the athletes. They wanted to know. And I had no desire to do that. Also, at that time, it seemed that all newscasters, sportscasters, they all wanted to come to Los Angeles and be like in movies. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm from there. I'm trying to get away from that. I don't want to do that. It was not what I wanted to, to do in front of the camera. And I saw so many women specifically, they can't wear this because they're not, they don't look the part on television, their hair, their, I mean, it went on and on. And I'm just like, but she's a great broadcaster. That's something that I started to dislike too. And you've just reminded me of it was like when I started to, kind of figure out like who I really wanted to be. I would I would be going into a report because I was a co-host on like Wednesdays at my college and I'd have to put on dress and put on makeup and curl my hair. And I was like, yes. this is so stupid that I, I look like this throughout the day. I don't like have mascara on, whatever. Yes. And then I have to like doll myself up. Mm-hmm. But Ben over there can just throw on his jacket. Absolutely. So <laughs> it was the same. That, that was one thing that I witnessed also. And they're definitely not to take away from Um, sports broadcasters that have a long career, specifically men, but it was one of those that we'd never see the same age of that there could be a 65-year-old male sports reporter that is, you know, again, great at his job, etc., but we never rarely see a 65-year-old female sports broadcaster. Rarely. So I saw the inequities very clearly, but what I witnessed also was I liked who the producer was. The producer was telling them what to do. And I was like, I want to do that. (laughs) I want to be the person that shapes the story. I want to be not so much that just reads it or does stats, if you will. And there's much more to it, obviously. But that was my biggest thing. And freshman year, I will say, as you said, I'm a proud Howard University graduate now. 
Um, but freshman year was difficult in the sense that, again, I said I'm a native Angelino. The weather was a big change to me. So it was snowing and I had the mentality also like, oh, well, it's snowing. You don't have to go to school. And it's like people live in the damn snow. Like <laughs> we drive, we go to school, we do stuff. Yeah. And I also had the mentality that, oh, I got an A last week. I don't need to go. And it wasn't as if I was doing anything else. I was just in the bed. So there wasn't like some partying no, and crazy social life. No, I was And that was the other thing. Like I never uh, – I was the designated driver. I was the one that, it to me, like I had tasted alcohol, but I was like, it tastes like poison. Like I'd rather it have. It is poison. It <laughs> is, right? But I, it, I was just like, I just, and I never liked the way people acted. I just, I don't know. Maybe you can call me no. square. You can call me whatever it is. But I just, I never, it wasn't like I didn't go to parties. Yeah. I did. I'm the same. Like even laughing gas at the dentist's office, like being not myself and not in control of my body yes. is something I've always Disliked from a very young age. Like mm-hmm. laughing gas would make me cry because mm-hmm. I was just like, I'm not clear headed. Yes. So I totally hear you. We're yeah. like, and I know we're like the, the small percentage. Yeah. <laughs> so I was the one that they called square in, in college a lot of times, but I was the designated driver. And so they love me for that. Um, but the one thing that I did, I, as you mentioned, I was a full academic scholarship. And I think that it was also one of those that. I didn't have to wait in line for my books. They were already ready for me. I didn't have to, I wasn't waiting in the registrar's office talking about financial aid and long lines or any of that stuff. I also was really feeling myself in the sense that, oh, I'm here and I'm getting A's Almost like once. I'm You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm untouchable. I'm um I can do anything. I can get an A and I don't have to show up for class. And that freedom also, you know, there was that freedom. There was no, my parents weren't there to tell me to get up, to go do something. There was no, so I really, I always refer to it as I lost my mind during that, that that first year, because again, everything was given to me, but I also felt that I was entitled to it for whatever ridiculous reason. And all I had to do for that academic scholarship was maintain a 3.0. A 3.0 is a B. That's not a big deal. Like, it really isn't in in the scheme of things, right? And I messed around the whole year. And before we got our last kind of some end of semester grades, I told my parents, I'm doing so good. And I kept telling them that also, because the first semester I did pretty good. Second one was longer, right? And you're waiting for those grades to come in. And that's when winter hit. That's when I decided to just stay in my room, just, you know, not go to class, whatever it was. And but I told them before I came home for summer, I'm doing so good. I'm doing I'm, I'm doing fabulous. And you know what? I don't want to live in the dorms anymore, Mom. And you genuinely believed this. Uh, absolutely. Yes. Wholeheartedly. Even though I knew I didn't go to class like for two times or whatever. But that A seemed to carry on as if I had, you know, solved a world disease almost. <laughs> That's how ridiculous I was. And I need a new car also. I wanted a car. Not a new car. I wanted a car Um, because I need to get around. And I did have a job. So that was the other thing. I did get a job. But I need – I just needed all this stuff. So they pick me up from the airport when it's time for summer break. And they pick me up in a brand new Jeep, Jeep Wrangler, because I've been doing so good. They trusted me my whole life. I've always done good. And so I was excited, et cetera, et cetera. The the grades come in the next week. I get a 2.9. And lose my scholarship. Wow. And you had no idea. Like, they didn't put out mid-semester grades? You didn't see it slipping? No. 
I had, well, we didn't really have, I saw it slipping, but I figured, oh, because I'm going to get this A on this test, it's going to push it up. Mm. I don't even think I really looked, to tell you the truth. So you what, know what, what I mean? what was your reaction? Like, are you having, is your, your I, did you cry on the spot? Like, that's your scholarship. Yes, I was, um, no, I didn't cry on the spot. I think I was in shock. Like, what do you mean? Like, it was wrong. I, in my mind, mm-hmm. I was like, no, we needed to, you need to call that school. You need to, and, and she's like, you're, this is your school. This isn't for me to do. But the biggest breaking point was when my, we're in the kitchen, I can set the scene for you. And it has just been this set whirlwind. The, the It's our kitchen kind of nook. It's my parents sitting there, but my mother is doing a majority of the talking. She brought mm-hmm. out the acceptance letter that I received a year prior. And she pushes, slides it towards me. And she said, remember when you received this acceptance letter and how happy we all were and we celebrated and the dinners and the parties and all of this? And I'm now I'm crying. And yes. And she said, you remember those people that probably didn't get an acceptance letter that deserved to be there, that fought to be there, that probably didn't have all of, of a scholarship, that had to wait in line, that had financial aid? what about them? And I'm sitting there crying. And then she said, you took someone's spot and this is what you did with it. And it broke my heart. I felt like I slid off the tape, like the chair was on the floor, cried. Mm. And she's like, and she kept telling me, you took someone's spot and this is what you did with it. And that moment on the floor, I vowed I would never take anyone's spot again. And so I, she said, if you would like to go back, you figure out how to get yourself there. And she walked out of the room and it was just like, oh my gosh. So she's like, go get a job, go to community college, figure it out. And so I had to do all this research, figure out about community college, how it would transfer back to Howard, all of that stuff, and got a job as a, because while I was at Howard, I was a waitress. And so I got a job at Red Lobster. She allowed me to go nowhere for 10 months. I was not able to go to the movies. I wasn't able to, I couldn't use the, I could use the phone and this was pre-cell phone. So there was no texting of friends. It was, and if I needed to use the phone, I could use it in the kitchen in front of everyone and talk to my friends, but I couldn't, it was really go to work and go to school and work on not taking someone's spot and realizing the privilege that you had and that you messed up by one point, one point. And so I worked at Red Lobster for nine and a half months, 10 months. I saved $28,000 and I was able to go back to school, pay for it. It was only paid for a semester, um, but I paid for that. I lost the scholarship completely. I was never able to get that back, but I was able to pay for that. So I realized and how much I appreciated it then when I actually worked for it. My credits transferred over. I graduated in four years with honors. So I still graduated in four years. (laughs) I learned it, but I've never forgotten that I will never take someone's spot. Can you give me an example of that? that you experienced after that situation, mm-hmm. like uh, of a spot that you might have felt you were in that could have been someone's or the way you treated it differently? I think that um, I really appreciated that when I came back in my internships. So it was one of those that I vowed that I'm going to not only raise up myself, but I'm going to raise up others. So I was going to, if someone else was going to an internship, I w- or if I knew about it, I'm going to share it with a lot of people. If there was going to be someone who wasn't able to... 
um, make their uh, tuition payments or whatever, I had a little extra money, I would put some money on on their uh, tuition for them. And anonymously, I would um, I kept paying it forward any way that I could. So whenever I got a little, I would give a little and I would feel that I was helping someone secure their spot that way. So that's what I do. Wow, and I don't want to jump ahead too too far, but mm-hmm. I mean, you'll you end up creating thousands of spots for so many people. Yeah. Like it's that whole thing has totally impacted your life. So mm-hmm. we stay there. I you- graduate. I moved to Atlanta because it was as if money grew on trees there. <laughs> I don't know why everyone was moving to Atlanta. I was just like, I'm moving to Atlanta, and I got a job with Nike, and because it was the sports, oh, I yes, still yes, wanted yes. the sports. So I got a job with Nike. I worked with Nike for many years, opening up Nike towns across the country. That was a retail store, and I would train the the employees and I would also work with our athletes, our Nike athletes, and getting the word out. So that was my first taste of PR, if you will. And I still felt it had that sports element. I'm working with athletes. I'm still getting to talk about sports. I'm just not in front of the camera, which I really, really loved. And so then I lived there for a few years. And then I live in New York because I'm opening up New York, San Francisco, and then Beverly Hills. So I come back home at that point. And this is another time that you're always going to have an epiphany in your life of what you really want to do. And I, they weren't opening Nike towns anymore. And it was the next step would be to move to Beaverton, Oregon. And I was like, it's picturesque and I'm sure it's beautiful, but uh, I'm not moving to Beaverton, Oregon. And so I quit my job and I didn't have another one. And it's one of those always that my friends will tease me because I'm like, remember when I was out of work? And they're like, yeah, it was three weeks that you were out of work. So (laughs) spare me that you were out of work. And um, so then I was able to secure a publicity, a PR position with, so it was PR has always been my baseline for stuff. And I was able to secure a position with Sinbad's company, the the Sinbad, the comedian, and he had a family business. So I worked there for a while, then I did corporate PR, then I came to CBS Wow, as a publicist. So that was the trajectory. And then you're at CBS and it's my understanding that you start noticing, and you've probably been this has been on your radar your whole life, is that you're not seeing enough representation and diversity in media. Mm -hmm. And when you decide that you've had enough Mm -hmm. and, like, this needs to change, what was your first step? My first step was really that it was definitely I wanted to see people who look like myself, obviously, as well as others within not my family, my community, my friends, i.e. the world, Mm -hmm. reflected in television. And it was, again... The catalyst for me was the death of my father. So my father passes away. I have time to grieve. And I almost felt as if he was asking me, what do you really want to do? I felt that as a publicist that I had definitely been on so many sets asking actors to to describe their shows, their passions, their dreams. And I wanted to, and it was almost as if there was a mirror to me. What are your passions? What are your dreams? What are your hopes? Was that your first major loss of a loved one? Yes. Yeah. And so when that happened, you sort of you sort of realize the value of life and like how precious maybe what your time is here. Yes, absolutely. And especially I'm an only child. I have a very small family. So it was devastating. Absolutely. I mean, obviously. But it was really a time also to reflect and then what I really wanted to do. Because I think that we go into days thinking just, oh, it's another day. The sun goes up, the sun comes down, and it's just another day. And again, 
going back to not taking someone's spot, going back to appreciating what we have. This was the biggest life blow, but also such an awakening within myself of what I truly wanted to do. And so I felt it as if he was asking me, Tiff, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And what do you really want to do, you know, with your professional career? And it was that I was, I created, so I poured into a PowerPoint presentation. I'm a math nerd in the sense of numbers and data and statistics. And so I was looking at television as a business. We all know that. Those commercials in between that we all speed through, they keep the lights on at uh, networks. And so I was looking at the data on those. Who's the, What's the purchasing power of multicultural audiences? And how, if they're seeing themselves, they'll probably buy that product that's in between the show. And so I did this entire PowerPoint presentation. I came back to work. Just by yourself? Just by myself, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I did research because now there's the internet, right? So um, I definitely did research. I had um, contacts at Nielsen, which is the rating system for, to find out who was watching, who was purchasing, who is buying, and what we're missing. They were just leaving money on the table. And so I create this PowerPoint what were some of Go the ahead. shows that were very popular at the time that you're seeing as mm-hmm. like an all white cast or a cast? Friends. Yeah. Friends. I, was, I, was, I, was I mean, right away. <laughs> yes. Like that's the one thing like people will say to me, you know, if I ever tell them I've never seen a full episode of Friends. It's been on in the background or whatever, but I didn't see anyone that looked like me. And it was not realistic in the sense that you're in New York City and no one has a friend of a friend. Like, I understand the main cast, but you never they weren't walking down the street in New York City. They weren't. None of those five people had a friend. That is true. Like, I can't even think of a friend of Joey or Phoebe or anyone that was of color in any way. No. Until like the last episode almost when um, I think it was Aisha Tyler. Oh, oh, there's, yes, Joey had a girlfriend who was. But whoever it was, but that was like towards the end of the season that we ever saw. So those were a lot of the times where you just, I mean, that's the one that is the most to me because it was such a huge hit. And I think that that was the other thing is that it looked normal, right? So if you have, if that's who's creating television, if that's who's writing television, and that's who's buying and putting it on the air, and you never had anyone say, like, hey, this doesn't look like the real world. Yeah, and that's something that now as I'm older, and especially because this conversation has is so much more apparent, and mm-hmm. and I see, it was Friends as, like, something anniversary recently, and people yes. were tweeting about this issue, and I feel like I have been... And this sounds so ignorant, but I've literally been like learning my white privilege mm-hmm. because I turn on that show and I'm like, oh, a great, just a great show. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the fact that like how privileged I am that I'm watching a show I really like and everyone looks like me. Yeah. Um, and then when I think about, you know, what it would be like to watch a show of, of no one that looks like me, mm-hmm. I mean, I understand. Like I wouldn't necessarily want to watch it because if you can't relate to the content, yes. you know – there's nothing there for you. Mm-mm. So Friends was big. And yeah, that, was, that was a really big one. So I think that that was another reason why. And not, again, I think that people loved it. It was funny. All of that type of stuff that taking nothing away from it. However, it just was nine times out of ten. I do not think 
for the most part. Some of it it is, but for the most part, I don't think that it's malicious in the sense of we're going to exclude everyone. I don't think that it was written with that in mind. I just think that this is what it looks like. This is who I want. This is who's considered the best, in quotations, um, for these roles. And I just don't think that people of color were even thought of. And when we think of this, this is the other thing. And that's almost worse than, than and just it saying, is. though. It's like we, we forgot exactly. a whole community. Absolutely. I mean, I th- absolutely. And so that was what my passion was, that not only did I want to see more people of color, I wanted to see, obviously, performers with disabilities. I wanted to see veterans. I wanted to see a, a, a generational, kind, a generational to me, diversity, yeah. gender diversity. I think that it was across the platform, as well as, obviously, LGBTQ performers, and not only... I wanted the character to be that because you without the character has to be representative of that, not the actor, obviously. So when you take this to the board, you take this to the top people at CBS, are they receptive? Yes. And that was the other thing. I took it to my boss, first of all, and I came in with all my data and my PowerPoint and all of that. And I said, I don't think that you are managing me effectively. This is where television is going. We are leaving money on the table. And I don't think you realize how smart I am. And I feel like he was a little bit blown away in the sense that, like, who's this young girl telling me that I'm not managing her effectively? But I also saw in his eyes that it was just like, here's someone who wants to make this company as well as corporation better, do something differently. So I think he respected that. And so it was two years in the making. So let me be very clear that it was a lot of no's before ever turned into that it turned into a yes. And so it was we don't have the budget. We don't know what that would look like. Um, what would you do all day? Uh, just I, all of these things. And it was just like, gosh, you know, I'm fighting and fighting and fighting for this. But it was one of those that when I finally met with our former chairwoman, she with after my presentation, and I kept updating the numbers. I kept doing, you know, all of this that I was able to at the end of the conversation, she said we would be crazy not to make this happen. And two weeks later, it happened. And so I was able to start an entire department that didn't exist at CBS. And now I have a whole team. And I'm really, really proud of that. You should be proud of that. I mean, you created a position that did not exist at a major television network for the better of the world. Yes. It's... It's truly incredible. And I and the thing that you said that also struck a chord with me is when I'm thinking you march into this man's office and you say, I am smart. Yeah. I'm smarter than what you're using me for. Like, I, I can do this. I mean, that's not easy for a lot of women to say, especially no. probably during that time when a lot of people in power were men. Yes. And they still are. Yeah. Yeah, they still are. <laughs> and they still are. No, but I – that's the thing. Like – how did you create this real pod? Because you had a passion for it and you weren't going to, you didn't have to ask anyone either, right? You could just, I'm going to get the equipment, I'm going to do it. But I'm sure that for advertising or ta- air, whatever it is, you had to ask someone at some point. But you believed in yourself that much. And that is what I am. I just felt that we are missing out on so much talent. And that's not just actors. That's not just writers. That's not just directors, producers, everyone that makes television. We are missing out on talent because of being marginalized, because of a systemic issue that has happened since the beginning of how entertainment was ever built. So that's the other thing that I think that I don't think that people really study history enough to realize how it took just because you and I were born with vaginas, we couldn't vote. Mm -hmm. And how long did that damn take? Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that that's the other part. Another thing that I will say that I'm continuously um, 
it's my I'm on my soapbox that I feel that you say the word diversity and people I can see it in their face. As soon as you say diversity, they think of someone black. Diversity is not synonymous with black. Well, I'm glad you brought this up because I do think that when the when shows first started becoming diverse, yes. it was very stereotypical. Like the black friend yes. who is very outgoing and hilarious. Yes. And like, supports the white like the black friend never we don't they, they don't have parents. They don't have a they real don't story have, line. They don't have yeah. nothing. They just are there to support the the white protagonist. Consistently, so there were always that, like, oh, it's the black best friend. Oh, and they again have nothing going on other than to uplift someone else. So that was the other thing that number one, it was trying to just get someone represented, but then you want it to be authentic. You don't want it to be a character, and you don't want someone whatever makes someone their ethnicity supersede their character. I don't want to walk in on a television show and be like, "Hi, I'm Black Tiffany." Come on. I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? So it's one of those that I don't always have to wear that on my sleeve, if you will. Mm -hmm. But it is something that I think that is perpetuated a lot because we'll talk about shows and I'll say, this doesn't look authentic. And then I'll get told, well, oh, we have someone black in the cast. And I'm like, oh, let's wrap it up. I guess we're done for the week. (laughs) Everyone go home. We've done it. Yes. Participation (laughs) trophies for everyone. Cookies. good stuff. So that's one thing that I really want someone to overall know And one person cannot be diverse. That's the other thing. When you say diverse, it means more than one because I consistently will get asked, oh, do you know a diverse writer? Do you know? I'm like, that's not an adjective for a human being. Yes. Like, what what are you saying? But they will just say a diverse performer, a diversity hire. Those are all things that I think that we're all, again, language is transforming. So I understand that. But that's been my biggest thing. Like, diversity doesn't mean black. Okay, let's think of a performer with a disability. Let's think about something more than that. And that truly is, excuse me, the most marginalized group at all. We are all one accident away from being within that category. We see it within our lives. And we, although we do not see that within film and television, unless it's per- specifically pertaining to like an accident or something along those lines. But I mean, it, couldn't it be someone, the judge, the lawyer, the, the, why does it have to be something that, oh, you know, and it always mm-hmm. is kind of aspirational also. Like, isn't it amazing that they could get to work today? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So we want it to be, again, more authentic. So what were some of the first, like, I want to say power moves, but like big moves you made on a show where you saw that happen? You pressed play and you said, like, I made that happen. Like, can you name a character? Can you name a show? Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of times that it's been specific that it was – Overall, with let's say storylines where we, because our department, they read all of the scripts. And that's the other thing. We're not the diversity police. I'm not here to change anyone's creative vision. It's much more of opening up the lens to what you're missing, to making it more authentic, to making it more, to me, accessible to a wider audience. And everyone wants more eyeballs watching their show. So I think that that's the other thing. But a lot of things, I think that the biggest kind of power moves that I get the happiest is when I see written by 
and it's someone that came through one of our initiatives. When I see directed by, and it's someone that we truly believed in, so off like camera. that. So off, absolutely on camera. Yes, I mean that's casting, but that's one of the first things that people think of is, oh, okay, great. We have like we have a diversity sketch comedy showcase. There's been so many people that have come out of that that are now working across the industry. But with casting, again, that's an entire process. I think I like to make sure that when you have writers, because before you can have a performer, someone needs to write it first, right? Um, Whatever that script is, that pilot. When you have that, then that's right where it is going to be that I'm going to make this an inclusive cast. I'm going to make it reflect our audience. I'm going to make it reflect what our world looks like because television travels the globe. It's not just in California. And you can really only write your personal experiences. Yes. So the best way to have probably a show or a film that Mm -hmm. is relatable and is all-inclusive is by someone that knows the experiences of other types of people. And that's why your writer's room needs to be reflective of that. So you can't have, you know, a singular... I know. I heard of... I forget what show it was recently, and it said something like it was an all-male writer's room, and they were writing about, like, women on their periods. And the girls were just like, what? You don't know anything about this. Like, can we write about this episode? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And I think that that's, I I forget, my daughter sent me a a quote before, like, I can do everything, I can do anything and do it all while bleeding. You know, (laughs) it was one of those, like, where it was just like, I can do anything you can do, but while I do it also while bleeding. That's funny. Isn't that crazy? Like, yes, we can do it all. What? Would you say um, was instrumental to making this change? Like advice mm-hmm. for someone listening who sees a need for something in community, sees a need yeah. in the world. Like what is your advice for them as they start? I think the biggest advice and now in this day and age, everyone does have a platform because of social media, because of like to me, I always say if you have a phone, you can be a content creator Mm -hmm. and you can go and sign up at classes to edit, to shoot, whatever that you can. So I think that when you see something that you definitely want to do or make a change, make sure that your voice is utilized. Make sure that you utilize it. I always say like when you have a seat at the table, don't just sit. Right? Ooh, I love that. Okay, I'm at the table, but am I sitting? Am I speaking? Am I changing? What am I doing? So when you have a seat at the table, don't just sit. You're there now, like, oh, I've arrived. So I think that that's the other thing. I think that another part for anyone that wants to get into this type of work, it really does, we say this all the time, and I'm sure that you have said it numerous times, do your research, meet people. I always say, like, if someone emails me, I'm going to email you back. I'm going to call you back. Let's talk about it. Um, Set up informational interviews. And that is imperative. When there's not a job, but you someone will at least see you, they'll remember that you did your research. They'll remember those things. So I think that that's the other part. Utilizing your voice, organizing your platform, and speaking out about the injustices that are occurring and or if you want to amplify someone's work that just isn't getting noticed as well. What is super powerful about your story is how it all sort of started with this idea that you took someone else's spot, Mm -hmm. and now here you are, and you've created so many. Yes. And do you kind of lay in bed at night thinking about that and, like, sort of feel really good? Like, you've paid it forward to so many? You know what, Victoria? I relish 
in it a lot because I feel that sometimes we're always looking for what's next and you forget about what you actually did. And so I definitely relish in it, mm-hmm. but I also think about what's next. Okay, who else is out there that's untapped, undiscovered that I want to make sure that I provide that opportunity for them? That, you know, we've, I built this entertainment diversity and inclusion department on three principles, and that's exposure, access, and opportunity. Because before you can ever be, even know that this is a real job, you have to be exposed to it, right? Some, because that's the other thing. That was the reason if we go back to me watching the football saying a girl can do that, I wasn't exposed to it. I hadn't seen many girls, let alone a woman of color. Then you have to have access. And when I talk about the access, it's another point of that internship, that informational interview, putting yourself out there to to talk to people, reaching out on social media. How many times have we heard, oh, I DM such and such, and they got back to me, and now I'm X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Um so DMs can be All great. My podcast guests, literally. <laughs> well, see, yes, because I was even asking you, how do you get people on here? Yes. But it works. Um, then I think also opportunity. We have to start giving people opportunities before they're overqualified. Like to me, everyone started somewhere. So why are we having someone has to be three times as good? And oh well, it's a risk, and I don't want to take the risk. Take the. It isn't a risk because it wasn't a risk when you hired the man. That wasn't a risk. It was just, right? <laughs> so true. It wasn't a risk then. It was just, oh, you know what? I see myself. And those are a lot of the things that I feel that in almost every industry, there is a heavy amount of unconscious bias. There's also a heavy amount of very conscious bias as well. Well, we're fortunate that you are creating opportunities. But something I want you to speak of sort of like, let's play devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. You created an opportunity where no one was sort of handing you one. Mm-hmm. So how important is it for these women listening to create opportunities and go into the office of their male superior and go into this place and just ask? Yes. Ask, I think, is important. The biggest thing is the ask. The biggest thing is the ask. It doesn't matter if you don't get it right there, right then and there. Like I always say, no means not right now. Okay? (laughs) It doesn't mean no forever. It just means not right now. Okay, well, then I'm going to come back in a month. But you have to, to me, I think that a lot of times, and I'm speaking generally, this is not an absolute, but I'm just saying that we've been so conditioned again and not allowed, in air quotes, to do so many things that we start to believe it. And so then we also, oh, I don't want to bother. I don't want to, you know, ruffle the feathers, that is right? So me. You'll be, I guess, I have um, an agency that's helping me create a, like a digital, like a, a, a banner for something online. Okay. And they sent me it and we've exchanged a few times and then they said, he said here's the final. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like it. Yes. And I, Honestly, like, sat there for 10 minutes trying to, like, how am I going to take this? Like, I'm so sorry to inconvenience you. I don't love it. And then my mom was like, this is, you have built this. Like, yes. if you don't like these colors, like, they should change them. This is your. But as women, we're so, but like, we want to please. Yes. People please. We don't want to cause a problem. Not at all. And we want to apologize. Stop apologizing. I know. I need to stop doing that. <laughs> There's number one, stop apologizing and stop using the word but. Preceded by I know. That is something that is consistently that I'll talk to so many people that I'm mentoring or that just having a conversation and, oh, I know, but if you remove that from your, and you'll, people will become conscious of it. And whoever's listening right now, I know you say it. I know, but, or I'm sorry. And that's the other thing. 
replace I'm sorry when you really mean excuse me. We say it, I do it all of the time. When I was walking down the hall, I we I met with another person and I said, I'm sorry. He didn't. He kept rolling. But I said, I'm sorry. And I'm like, what am I sorry for? I'm not sorry. I, it could have been, excuse me, right. right? So those are the things that I think that, again, the power of the ask. And this is the other thing. It's not so much that it's just in the moment. It has to be also that this is your life's work. So two people go in for the same job. It's going to pay $50,000 a year. The man says, you know what, I'd love to take this, but if I could get 51000 they say yes. The woman agrees to 50000 The woman has to work six years longer before retirement because she didn't ask. Right? So it's one of those that even if it's a no, not right now, not a no forever, but it's one of those that you definitely, as uncomfortable as it is, start doing it. And as women, the reason I believe we do this is because we, and I feel like I'm going to quote a Taylor Swift song, but she just came out with a song called The Man, and it basically says... If I what I was wearing, if I was rude, would all be separated from my good ideas and power moves. Yes, and it's just the truth mm-hmm. because we. I I feel like if I sent the email and I didn't say I'm sorry, but if I just mm-hmm. said, could you please change the colors and I can wait till next week? Yes, I don't know why I feel like that's mean and rude, but mm-hmm. if a guy sent that to me, I'd be like, okay, he didn't like it. Absolutely, <laughs> and I think that it's just something a part of that is getting used to it. We're used to apologizing. We're used. We don't want to. And that's the other thing that to me, I always say, hesitate and you lose. And that is obviously rooted in is more of a sports. Um, It's more of a sports comment, I would say. Um, It's something that I tell my daughter all the time. She's a volleyball player. So I'll tell her, like, hesitate and you lose. You can't hesitate. Go for it. When the ball is in the middle, you got you got to (laughs) go. Do something. Hesitate and you lose. And so it's another thing that I just feel that with this podcast, you are empowering women to think a little bit differently. And that's all. It's already in them. We have it in us. It's not so much that we need to recreate the, re- the wheel in this sense. We create life. We are powerful. We are talented. We are, to me... One of the, I mean, we create life? What? That's awesome. So yeah. that's the biggest thing. Like, <laughs> wait a minute. We are not relishing in the power that we have. And I think that that's the, um, the important part is that we have to continue to not only support one another. And I think that that's a huge um thing that we need to continue to do, continue to support, uplift women, smile at them when you walk in the street. Um, I always tell that to my daughter every morning, share your smile with someone today. Never know how much they need it. You know? It's so true. Right? You never know. Two of the most inspiring women that have shown me women sporting women are you and Kelty Knight, the two that I met here on Mm -hmm. the slot. And so I just having, because I didn't think that. And I think it's because I was an athlete. I obviously You didn't think what? Well, I was nice to women. Like I was nice. But when it came to career, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm not going to share like notes on this player. Like I want to have the better story. Or I don't, I want to like, I thought like everything's a competition. But why did you think that though? Where do you feel that that's where you were taught? Uh, that you needed it just for you. Was it school? Where, I don't where know do you if think? it was sports, like having a position. Like I don't. I know I'm always competing with females. Can play a female sport. Like I'm competing okay. with women all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe it was this this idea that there's only spot for one woman. So mm-hmm. if I want that to be me, because there's not a lot of spots for us. I don't okay. know what it was, but 
I think seeing two women who were so powerful and had such busy schedules and then take the time to help me was my like, oh my gosh, like I want to make someone feel the way that these women made me feel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and plus it's a Did you have a mentor like that? I had lots of mentors. Absolutely. I really, really did. I had within school, I had a professor that uh, Dr. Lee Thornton, I just uh, adored. And I also had a counselor at school, um, Carol Dudley, that I adored also. And that was the other thing that to me, as soon as, but you have to have the fortitude, right? You have to have the kind of that a lot of times that we go to universities and they get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to be there, right? And it's a wonderful, I love being an institution that is such a supportive of its students, but we have to utilize what's there, right? So that career counselor, which is with, which was Miss Dudley, I was in her room every day at lunch. I didn't hang out on the yard. I was in her day. How am I going to get an internship? Where can I get an internship? Who can you call for me? But again, I use my voice from a very young age, and I'm continuing to do that, you and really I love did. that. I really did. I think you were always confident. You knew who you were. You knew what you brought to the table. Yeah. It's like, but I didn't know how to get there. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I, I do think that, number one, being an only child, it, there's no, like, go sit at the kids' table, right? The, our table was at the whole family. So I was never – it was one of those that I feel that I definitely – and I had – my family was also, you know, yes, you can do anything. Yes, you can. We're going to support you. Yes, you belong here. Yes. I mean, there was always a yes. And they t- – but they also told you when you were wrong. Oh, which is all so the time. Important. Absolutely. They weren't just like, yeah, giving your participation trophy. They were saying, here's your trophy because you oh, deserved yeah. it and you worked Absolutely. for it. And yeah. if you didn't no. work hard, you didn't win. Sorry. Yes. No, for sure. There was no kind of – I mean, and I think that that's why there was so much with my mom being able to say that, you know, that – and it's still – like, I mean, I still think back of that day, like, damn. Does she know how you know? much that has impacted you? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. She's the wisest woman I know. She's the one that within our whole family that we all look toward. That's our North Star, that she's just one of those. She's lived longer and smart as a whip, and she knows the right answers. And that's the other thing. Like my whole I got to get her on the podcast. You know? Exactly. <laughs> like she is – it's one of those where you're like, damn it, she's right. You know, like like always right. And um, she saw that, I think. And she knew that I wasn't going to let it just like, oh – I lost my scholarship. I'll just stay home, you know. And, you know, this is another fun fact that I did uh, um, when I was doing my research of where I could go and get credits. Did you know that Howard and USC are sister schools? I did not know that. Yeah. So the the students can go vice versa um, and get credits and stuff like that. (gasps) We're sisters. So we're already (laughs) sisters and we didn't even know it. Yes. Well, thank you so much. This has been truly so amazing. And I'm already thinking about how the the different things you've said that I want to like pull and put on social media and like the seat at the table and the, and your mom's quotes and your quotes. It's just amazing. So thank you so much. I adore you. I I just want you to know I'm so proud of you (laughs) and everything that you've done that, you know, getting to know you over these past four years has just watched you blossom like a flower and you're continuing to plant these seeds, which are your listeners, which are your followers, which are all of that social media stuff that you know much better than I do. (laughs) Um, But I really think that you too need to relish in where you came from. Like when I first met you and I always wanted you to calm down. It was one of those that I always wanted to give you a hug. I always (laughs) felt that you were like anxiety or, you know, and I I wanted to like put a 
uh, I'm trying to, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I worried so much about like, I got to accomplish this. I got to be this, like the future. Like that was Yeah, and I always wanted you to slow down. I always, I I always wanted to put reins on you, if (laughs) you will. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, nice. You're good enough. You're good enough. Yeah. Um, But just to see. see, you saw it in me before I even saw a therapist to tell me. (laughs) I did. Like, I really did. I didn't, obviously, not to the extent, because then I would have called your mom. Oh, yes. But, um, it was much more to me just that pressure. Just a need to achieve. Yes. And it was uh, for so many reasons that you've already outlined. But to me, the dedication that you have done to make this your life's passion, you can really tell. And it exudes itself. And you'll never know the amount of people that you really get to touch. But just know that um, I really am proud of you. You're going to make me cry. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) It's the real pod. Uh, Yeah, that's so true. Right? It's the real pod. But (laughs) it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for listening to Hashtag Real Pod. And thank you to Tiffany for her time today. I am so fired up from this podcast. Like, I just feel like I want to go work really hard and I want to get my seat and I want to talk at the table. I hope you're feeling just as juiced as I am because she is so inspiring and I love when I'm talking to a woman who just makes me feel this way and and makes me feel like I want to make a difference too and I want to be just as driven and, and just as wise as her one day. So I hope you're also feeling that way. Go out into the world, kick butt, let's dominate this together and I will see you guys next week.